Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk About SACT. My name is Michael, I'm a Advanced Cancer Pharmacist and the Education and Training Secretary and the podcast host. And today I'm joined by Catherine Quinlan. Catherine, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I'm Catherine, specialist haematology and oncology pharmacist in London. So I work at a tertiary centre for hemato-oncology. Um, so we do transplants, stem cell transplants and CAR-T. Um, we also have an oncology cohort of patients in our outpatients. So mainly dealing with breast cancer and hepatocellular carcinoma. Perfect. Well, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. What are we talking about today, Catherine? So today we're going to be talking about, I wouldn't call myself an expert as such, but I've recently been doing my independent prescribing course. And the initial focus for that for me was on treatment emergent peripheral neuropathy in multiple myeloma. And as part of my hours in practice, I spent a lot of time in clinic with haematology consultants and registrars, um, but also um, reviewing patients in our chemotherapy day unit. We've got a lot of patients with breast cancer, so see a lot of patients with taxol-induced peripheral neuropathy. And it's given me a really uh, keen interest in this area. And I think it's a symptom area that probably we're not so good at having conversations with patients and it's really underreported and I think there's a lot of lack of awareness in the patient population around this. And I've also spent some time with our palliative care colleagues and in our peripheral neuropathy clinic as well. Um, so it's given me a more of an understanding. And I also had the amazing opportunity of being awarded some funding from Bopper's Education Training Grant to travel to Japan back in June and to go to MASC, which is the Multinational Association for Supportive Care in Cancer. They had their annual conference in conjunction with JASC, which is the Japanese version of the association. Uh, so I went there to learn more about supportive care and how we can help uh, manage peripheral neuropathy in our patients. Perfect. And how was MASC? Mask was great, an amazing experience to be able to travel to a conference in another part of the world. It's a lovely organisation and it's very multinational, obviously. Um, so met people from all over the world, lots of people from Australia, America, Europe and different parts of Asia. And I think really diverse in terms of different healthcare professionals. So been to uh, some other conferences, a very heavy medical focus, whereas there was lots of pharmacists, dietitians, psychologists, nurses, doctors. So that was really nice. And they also have a really um, high level of engagement with patient representatives. So they have uh, patient advocates who are amazing to me and uh, bring their stories of how we can improve cancer care. I think that's a really important way of listening and understanding what people are going through in order to really make things work for people who are living through cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Really glad you enjoyed it. So um, if we start off with peripheral neuropathy, what is it? So if we think about the nervous system, you have the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord. And the peripheral nervous system is basically all of the nerves which are outside the CNS. And the peripheral nerves are responsible for conveying messages to uh, sensory and motor uh, messages to and from the brain and the rest of the parts of the body. So peripheral neuropathy is a very broad term. 
essentially referring to some kind of damage to the peripheral nerve. And that can be caused by some sort of lesion um, or disease of the nervous system. Uh, an example I heard at mask was it's kind of like an old telephone wires when you get a bit of static in the line. I thought that was quite a nice way of explaining that to patients and the messages aren't quite getting through to the right places or sometimes there's a bit of crackliness in, in, the, in the line. And it can be a real dose limiting problem. You can get peripheral neuropathy related to several aspects of the cancer. So it could be related to direct infiltration of the nerves by the cancer. So for example, in myeloma or um, other Plasma cell disorders like amyloidosis, you can get deposition of antibodies into the nerves, which cause neuropathic symptoms. And you could also have neuropathy, which is induced by surgery and surgical damage to the nerves in a surgical site area. And I guess the main thing we'll be talking about is chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, which is direct neurotoxicity of um, chemotherapy agents. Your main culprits will be things like bortezomib and thalidomide in the myeloma world, also the vinca alkaloid, aribulin, taxanes, platinum drugs and brentuximab verdotin as well. So it's a broad range of causes and I think one of the reasons it's quite not misunderstood but maybe under under understood is that it's invisible. People can't see the symptoms, it's not the same as your hair falling out or feeling really sick. People can't see those symptoms. I think there's a, a general lack of awareness over what is happening to people but it can be very limiting um, for people who experience it. Absolutely. And I love that as an analogy, the telephone wire. Mm. So I, I will be stealing that in the future. <laughs> so what are the common symptoms experienced by cancer patients? So in chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, we primarily see sensory symptoms. The classic way of describing it is a symmetrical stocking glove distribution. So typically uh, symptoms begin distally so at the end of the fingers and in the toes and the feet people get very different types of symptoms you can get numbness or tinglings different types of paresthesias some people have described their feet feeling wet even though they're not wet so changes in sensation people can get pain uh, which can be particularly problematic. It's usually described as kind of electric shock-like pain or a lot of burning, burning sensation. And this can cause problems with also being able to mobilise around, for example, if it's affecting people's feet and they have a lot of numbness or changes. So I was speaking to a lady in our chemotherapy unit a while ago and she said it's like walking on sand. And that's how she was describing it, this burning sensation in between her toes of this hot sand, but also this weird numbness of being able to try and walk, even though she knew she was walking on the soles of her feet, but it just felt like she was sinking. So it's very individual, but those kind of effects can really impact on daily life and being able to do things definitely walking is a big issue and the feet are very heavily affected it tends to travel then upwards through the legs and then you get your hands and fingers and um, which are affected as well so people struggle sometimes with doing small like delicate tasks for example doing up buttons playing on their phone or typing their phone losing sensation of small objects in their hands being able to write properly that kind of thing you do get some elements of 
motor neuropathy sometimes, so actually affecting the motor nerves, but that's less common with chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. You would expect things like weakness. Sometimes people get cramp-like sensations, much less common. Sometimes people get autonomic symptoms as well, which is thought to be related to some kind of neuropathies. For example, with bortezomib, you can sometimes get autonomic neuropathies where that's affecting the autonomic nervous system. So people might experience things like lightheadedness or dizziness when they stand up, postural hypertension or problems with their bladder and bowels. People can also have things like that as well. And are there any risk factors that may increase the likelihood of developing peripheral neuropathy after chemotherapy? Yes, there are a couple of different elements to this. Uh, You can think of risk factors that are patient related. There's thought to be some predisposing risk factors to developing peripheral neuropathy or worsening peripheral neuropathy. For example, increasing age and comorbidities such as diabetes. If there's existing peripheral neuropathy related to the diabetes, even if it's a subclinical peripheral neuropathy, that's thought to be a risk factor for worsening chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. People could also have neuropathy related to other conditions, for example, alcoholic neuropathy, some hereditary neuropathies such as Charcot-Marie-Tooth syndrome, also things like HIV. In advanced HIV, you can get some neuropathy as well. And sometimes related to uh, certain deficiencies such as uh, vitamin B12 or hypothyroidism. And then you can also get factors related to the chemotherapy itself. So, for example, with bortezomib, they noted that now we're using subcutaneous bortezomib versus IV bortezomib rates of peripheral neuropathy are reduced, so the route of administration can also be an impact. And also frequency of dosing with bortezomib, we usually use once a week dosing, and the previous schedules of twice a week dosing were associated with slightly more peripheral neuropathy as well. And consideration of things like cumulative dosing, particularly with thalidomide, cumulative dosing and development of neuropathic symptoms was problematic as well. And I guess there's also considerations with the chemotherapy and the type of neuropathy. So the course of neuropathy can be quite different for different drugs. So with oxaliplatin, for example, you can get acute neuropathy, which develops sometimes within a couple of hours of the infusion. And that can present as a sensation of kind of breathlessness, but that's very acute and wears off shortly after the infusion could be managed by reducing the infusion rate. But you can also have chronic neuropathy, which develops, and and that tends to be the case for a lot of the treatments, unfortunately. And is peripheral neuropathy reversible? And if so, how long does it persist after treatment? Yeah, that's a good question. And I guess kind of related to this acute chronic neuropathy as well. And I think it's definitely something in my experience of talking to patients, people aren't really prepared for because the course is highly variable depending on the individual, but it can be very long term for certain people. Typically, the symptoms would develop within the first couple of months of treatment and continue during active chemotherapy treatment with the agents that are neurotoxic, for example, taxanes with breast cancer. Usually treat the neuropathic symptoms will stabilise after the treatment is finished and generally have a tendency to improve over time, but it can take years to improve. And in some cases, it may not be reversible to a 
100% baseline extent. And I think that's something that people find quite challenging to deal with and something that maybe people don't know when they start their treatment, that that is something that could happen, although it's manageable to a certain degree, but not being aware of that potential outcome can be quite challenging. There's a few people I've spoken to in their breast oncology clinic as part of my hours for my course who are in there like coming to the end of their three years of meter infusions after breast cancer treatment and they've still got ongoing neuropathic symptoms so it can be quite long term. And in terms of preventative measures are there any as cancer pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, doctors, mm. nurses etc working in these clinics is there something that we can do to help patients to prevent these symptoms from occurring? If you look at the big guidelines, so ESMO's got a really nice guideline, ASCO as well, they've been really useful for my research and learning about this area. There aren't any recommended pharmacological agents to help prevent peripheral neuropathy. There's been quite a lot of studies investigating various different agents of supplements, using things even like gabapentinoids as prevention but none of them have really shown any appreciable efficacy in this area and there's been quite a lot of interest recently in non-pharmacological agents or approaches so this is an area where the evidence base is building so I don't think there's enough evidence to necessarily recommend one thing or another but there's been some research into things like cryotherapy so cooling or compression such as wearing like tight surgical glove on the hands and there's a trial actually um, which I learned about mask which is happening in America I think which is using the it's a device made by Paxman who do the scalp cooling machines they've actually got a limb cryocompression machine which is really cool it works on the same kind of principle that reducing blood flow to the area during the chemotherapy infusion may have some sort of neuropathy sparing effect. So there's a trial that's opened up at the moment, which is a phase three randomised trial, randomising patients to three different arms to see if it's cryotherapy, cryotherapy and compression or a kind of low compression arm. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see the results of that in the future to see if that works. The other thing that is something we talk about quite a lot especially in the context of prehabilitation for stem cell transplant. If this is something that's available um, within your service is exercise therapy. And again, I don't think there's particular evidence as to which intervention is most efficacious. We don't know which exercise prescription exactly works. And I think there's challenges in, in the methodology of being able to work that kind of thing out. But there is evidence for it being beneficial and especially alongside other cancer-related symptoms such as cancer-related fatigue. We know that exercise is beneficial for that. So if you do have a, someone who's struggling and you've got a physiotherapy department that can help, that would be something that I would explore as an option for them. Perfect. And as you've been to MASC, is there any current research in the treatment of peripheral neuropathy? You've mentioned briefly a clinical trial for the prevention, but is there anything for treatment itself? One of the other studies that was quite interesting, again, it's, it's a non-pharmacological treatment. So there are some studies which are exploring some of the pharmacological agents, the quite uh, small studies. One non-pharmacological treatment option that was really interesting was actually to do with acupuncture. And 
again, I think going to mask and seeing a lot of how different cultures operate and how non-pharmacological and complementary medicine, I suppose you would call it, is incorporated in other parts of the world was very interesting. So there was a, a very small kind of proof of concept study over the use of acupuncture to help treat ladies with breast cancer. Uh, who had ongoing peripheral neuropathy, which did show some statistically significant benefit to those patients. So it's a very small kind of proof of concept. I think, again, it shows that there are different avenues that can be explored. And I think thinking about especially neuropathic pain, where we know that the pharmacological treatments for chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, the evidence isn't very great for any of the interventions. And a lot of the evidence is drawn from studies which are not based in chemotherapy induced neuropathies but implied from other areas it draws on looking at the person as a whole and I think there's lots of other factors that influence how people feel about pain so how rested they are how they're looking after their emotions and that kind of thing and I think these non-pharmacological interventions maybe will be a good way of addressing that kind of holistic aspect to patient care. And is there anything else that you would like to highlight that you've learnt or seen at MASK this year? There was a whole session about artificial intelligence and different avenues to explore how that can be used in a supportive care setting. So there's some very cool robotic legs that I got to try on. They were designed by a surgeon to help with having to stand for many, many hours in surgery. But the idea is that this could be also used to help maybe rehab patients who can't stand very well for extended periods of time. And another thing which I thought was really nice was in Japan, particularly, they have kind of like here a huge aging population. So being able to provide sufficient care and personalised care for enough people as we get older is quite tricky. And you have to look at innovative ways of being able to use artificial intelligence to support people through that when you maybe don't have the resources that you would like in terms of human beings to deliver the care. So there were some really nice, interesting uh, ideas. And if anyone has any questions for you with regards to things that you have seen at MASK, things that we haven't covered in this podcast, what is the best way to get in contact with you? Um, I'm happy for people to email me. I did do a Twitter takeover of the, the Boffer Twitter, but I don't have my own Twitter, unfortunately. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode of Let's Talk About Sect. <laughs>